Hi, everyone. My name is Bo Bree Rigi. I'm an artist, choreographer, and educator uh, based in New York. And I'll be speaking about some of the nearest and dearest issues to my heart, um, broadly body space ecology. So voila, here we go. Um, I teach at Parsons School of Design and I'm on the faculty of um, our foundation's art studios as well as a class called Sustainable Systems. And this class um, deals with some of the most gigantesque kind of issues of our society, climate change, environmental injustice, social injustice, and attempts to incorporate some of that research and um, kind of conceptualization into creative practice. Um, and I'm an ecologist, I'm an environmentalist. Um, I'm a Korean American French human of um, many cultures and three languages and with much complexity. Um, you know, I'm a woman of color and this class has generated a lot of interest in my peers. So I'm recording this really for my friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends who kind of see the intersectionality between all the racial and social injustice that we're seeing very, very plainly that the pandemic has exacerbated um, today and is able to connect that with the extraordinarily problematic and violent and capitalist and short-term way that we are and have been relating with our land, with our food, with environmental resources like soil, air and water, energy. Um, and these are really, really huge, huge subjects. <laughs> so I think this will take many, many episodes. Um, and I actually have quite a bit of previously recorded lectures and conversations with other amazing kind of artists and um, creative thinkers. But this week's hate crimes in Atlanta, where eight people have tragically died, um, once again at the hands of domestic terrorism, um, and let's just call a spade a spade, a, you know, a white supremacist, and six of those um, deaths being Asian women um, who were working in these massage um, parlors and salons that were clearly targeted. Um, yeah, it's brought up this urgency to share what my research and my teaching is about and also what my work is about just to a bigger audience and just make it more accessible um, for myself and also having had conversations with friends um, it kind of feels really necessary to share um, this to y'all, to you guys, whoever's listening. Um, so let's start with this week. I think the first thing that I want to say is while maybe the rest of the world might have been shocked by this, I do think that the Asian American community was expecting something like this to happen throughout the winter. And of course I was shocked and devastated about it, but at the same time I did feel numbness in that, you know, the hate crimes and the racism towards Asian Americans has been 
increasing very frighteningly. So um, throughout the pandemic, and not just in rural America, but in major diverse metropolitan places like Oakland and New York City and and these hate crimes were just not getting the coverage. Um, it was not mainstream. It was not um, readily available. You know, very like woke white peers um, often had no idea that they were happening. Um, and this is a problem. And I think this leads me to my first main point about, I've been thinking very much a lot this week about the erasure which is a violent term um and the invisibility which also has violence there um and this kind of um the asian american invisibility kind of being really intensely problematic um and the fact that it took these deaths for this issue to even gain some kind of significant real estate in the general dialogue is really, really, really sad. Going back to my role as an educator and as an artist, I um, I think about this all the time. I think about represent- representation and invisibility all the time. And one of the hardest things stepping up to the role as, um, you know, a professor and a you know, very well-known art and design school uh, was this additional labor of being a woman of color educator in a white patriarchal capitalist society. And honestly, when I was a student, I wasn't actually, um, I, I don't think I was informed enough. I was just kind of learning what was in my bubble and I wasn't able to think critically about, gee, you know, 19 out of 20 of these artists I'm learning about are white men. And then there's like one white woman. And then maybe every once in a blue moon, we learn about, you know, James Baldwin, or, you know, these kind of really skewed percentages. Um, But as a younger college student, I honestly didn't even think anything was wrong with that. I was just busy kind of learning what I was supposed to learn as an educator, as somebody who's crafting a narrative, as somebody who is world building, as somebody who is, has the power to tell students what is important for their education, for their foundations, year education, I began to take it really seriously. It was a, it was a moment of big reckoning for me. Um, And I was shocked actually that a lot of the artists who have completely fundamentally uh, shaped my career, um, Bill T. Jones, who uh, I learned about as a high school student and who I eventually got to apprentice under after college, um, you know, black gay choreographer, um, Isamu Noguchi, who uh, I learned about, um, literally he was, a caption under uh, a Martha Graham image um, set designer. Um, and, you know, also I want to point out that most of these folks are male. Um, jazz was a huge influence for me as a high school student. Um, Charlie Mingus. Um, and then, of course, vocalists like Nina Simone and Alice Coltrane, who um, was a brilliant musician in her own right. 
um, it was really when I began teaching that I did the holy shit demographics moment. And I was like, these are artists that I had to seek out on my own because I needed role models that were not, that were more like me that had shared experiences like me, you know, having grown up as, um, an Asian girl or teenager in the West, in America, in Europe. Um, I think I was just really hungry for that. And it should have been obvious at the time. But um, so there, so first of all, there is a huge issue of Asian invisibility. And when Asians are represented, it's often very um, like a caricature uh, Asian females are incredibly sexualized. Um, forget about objectification. It's like, um, I think what Trin Min Ha calls in her, uh, text woman, native other. Um, it's just like when a woman becomes only about sex. And I think that happens very, very easily, um, in the portrayal of Asian women in the West um, you know, the concubine, the whatever, you name it. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Um, and then of course there's the Bruce Lee's and the kind of Asian masculinity that, um, is often, you know, I mean, I love Bruce Lee, but is often a caricature and it's not fully humanized. And, um, one of the reasons that I, I think as a young, you know, creative person, I did turn to dance as sort of a refuge was uh, I felt that it was a space where my young, insecure, developing teenage body was not sexualized necessarily. And it was empowering and it was a space, um, yes, of incredible judgment. And, you know, like you had to be good and fast and learn things quickly and stuff. But um, the dance studio did have that power and that space of being, um, and I was really lucky to have that growing up, um, a space apart from this kind of hypersexualization slash also caricaturization slash you will now be, um, also invisible. Like you won't have a voice, like a lot of these depictions of, um, Asians is very condescending. Uh, there are accents, there are words that, you know, they are stripped of a language. Um, so going back to this, uh, week's events, um, I think they felt particularly horrible to Asian American women or just Asian women in general all around the world. I imagine, um, because we're familiar with this, whether you're a banker, whether you're a professor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're, you're a nail artist, whether you're a um, sex worker, whether you're a nanny, it really doesn't matter when you're just walking down the street. We've all had this um, joint experience of hypersexualization and that kind of sex kind of erasing any notion of humanity really. Um, and I think it's, I think it's really important to repeat that. So this hypersexualization erasing 
the humanity of an individual. Um, and then being told that it's supposed to be flattering. Um, this is this is kind of a, an additional catch-22 as an Asian American where I think because systemic racism has been so unbearably horrible to African Americans, we often are told or we feel as though, you know, oh, like this is just a flattery and this isn't racism and you have it easy. So just suck it up and deal with it. Um, which I think for the most part, most of us do. And I certainly have. Um, and it's only recently, as I said, with the teaching that I've really put, been able to put a magnifying glass onto what I've been taught because I'm in the role of teaching. And um, so there's that. Um, because I am an environmentalist and because I think there's a really deep connection between social injustice and environmental injustice, um, I'm going to turn a bit to ecology. Um, so the monoculture fertilizers that most farms are using in the U.S. to grow our food are direct products of warfare. Um, so first of all, that. Second of all, that warfare is directly linked to white supremacy. It's linked to the Nazis, like the guy who invented the technology that makes our pesticides, the it's called the Haber-Bosch uh, team. They literally made the chemicals that killed Jewish folks in Auschwitz. Okay, this is really heavy stuff. Um, so there's a really deep, deeply entrenched relationship between white supremacy and the way we're treating our land and the way that um, that pervasively, that pervasive violence influences everyone. Um, and in a, in a way that is so entrenched and so insidious that I think, you know, we've learned to block out, you know, say 90% of it until something like this comes up. So this is, um, again, another kind of statistic, but in 2019, the UN released a study about the world's topsoil, which is kind of the top living layer of our soil that is gorgeous and beautiful and filled with beautiful organic minerals and microorganisms like mycorrhizae that um, are what keep our planet going that um, in 60 years, we, if we keep doing what we're doing now, that that topsoil will deplete. So we will be soil poor, we'll be soil negative as a, as a species. The consequences of this are enormously scary and devastating. Um, and I'm not going to go into all of that right now, but I think it's very, very, very important to point out that what we are living in now, the Anthropocene, uh, also called the Great Acceleration post-World War II, 1950, um, 
this is a byproduct of, or it is the product of fascism and white supremacy. And it is so pervasive that we, you know, we're literally eating it. Like it's the basis of our modern culture food system. And I think acknowledging this and opening our eyes to this and being able to say this, being able to, again, have that magnifying glass and look at, you know, what kind of narrative am I building? What kind of world am I, um, you know, living in? What kind of food am I eating? What kind of air am I breathing? Where's the water that I'm drinking coming from? To look at that systematically and realize that it's such an entrenched part of our reality is really, really, really important. And I think that's why going back to the horrible event that happened in Atlanta this week, um, you know, the news coverage of it is an example again of how how white supremacist then the narrative of the event actually was or is and continues to be and not necessarily yeah in some instances justifies the killing uh, or at least humanizes the murderer and gives the murderer the chance to be a human and represents perhaps that murderer in you know he was having a really bad bad day and this kind of empathy that you know, is devoid in general for Asian women, period, um, to put it, you know, in more stark terms, like what I was talking about before. Um, so I think, you know, for this first conversation, um, you know, I don't think I want to talk about solutions or, you know, anything right away like that. I think it's important to just put it out on the table that, you know, the very nitrogen fertilizer that, you know, grows our conventionally grown food in this country is a product of white supremacy and fascism. And that's how deep it is, you know, um, Glyphosate, which is in Roundup, which Monsanto developed soybeans that are um, for this pesticide, was used in Agent Orange. It was used in the Vietnam War. And so these, um, these remnants of, you know, colonialism and imperialism and white supremacy um, are just everywhere. And Again, I think one of the most painful and most obvious reckonings for me as an educator has been looking and noticing it more and more and more. So by beginning to have noticed that deep injustice of invisibility and erasure and the really skewed problematic percentages of... um you know, my black and Latino and white and Asian friends of all colors that were in the classrooms with me versus the folks that we're learning about as artists, as writers, as historians, as scientists, whatever, um, that 
the moment you kind of open your eyes to it, you can't really go back. And so it, it makes my life a lot more difficult because in my teaching, I try to bring in, you know, at least half female identified uh, references and have build a world where I see myself represented and where I see the artists that lifted me up represented. Um, so, and I just want to make a note that, you know, I did go to college in this, uh, extraordinary university, Columbia. Um, I did a double major in art history and dance at, at Barnard college. And, you know, in many ways it was one of the most, you know, exhilarating periods of my life. Um, but then looking back, it it's it's sad that this really high quality of education was lacking this very kind of basic sense of justice. So, yeah. So I'm going to try and keep these at about I don't know, 20 to 25 um, minutes, especially the ones solo. Um, maybe the conversation ones could be longer, but um, I wanted to read uh, the first page of a really beautiful essay written by Isamunoguchi called I Became a Nisei. Um, Nisei is a term for a person who is, you know, kind of neither Japanese nor neither American. Um, which I really relate to. I, I think I kind of exist in between somewhere in between Korea and America and France and just in this like interstitial space. Um, and it was an essay that was shared by the Noguchi museum when I took my class there, um, several years ago. Um, and it's a text that he wrote for Harper's, uh, never got published, but it explains his, um, self-internment, which means he didn't have to go to Japanese internment camps, but he voluntarily interned himself. Uh, he was half white um, and was passing as white, I guess, but clearly not, right? Because he identified as um, a colored man, as a Japanese man in America. Um, and it's just incredibly powerful and relevant. Um, I was told that he taught art in the internment camps. Um, and this text is available on their website. If you Google Noguchi Nisei, N-I-S-E-I, uh, it comes right up. It's a 12-page PDF. But I'll read the first page and then say ciao for now. Okay. Quote, to the hybrid anticipates the future. This is America, the nation of all nationalities, the racial and cultural intermixture is the antithesis of all the tenet of the Axis powers. For us to fall into the fascist line of race bigotry is to defeat our unique personality and strength. And that first paragraph for some reason is in parentheses. Then he says, <clears throat> when people ask me why, I, a Eurasian sculptor from New York, have come so far into the Arizona desert to be locked up with the evacuated Japanese from the West Coast, I sometimes wonder myself. I reply that because of my peculiar background, I felt this war very keenly and wished to serve the cause of democracy in the best way that seemed open to me. 
At other times, I say that I felt sympathy for the plight of the American-born Japanese, the Nisei, or else that relocation offered a presage of inevitable social change in which I wished to take part. All of this is true, but I might also have said that a haunting sense of unreality, of not quite belonging, which has always bothered me, made me seek for an answer among the Nisei. And those that last sentence about the haunting sense of unreality and the unbelonging, um, I very much relate to. And it just seems so relevant today, um, sadly, many decades after this text was written. Um, and also, Trin Min Ha, who's an author that I mentioned, um, she wrote a book called Woman, Native, Other. Um, and she writes very clearly about, um, quote, the search for a woman's identity, um, privileging woman as sex. So, you know, what I was talking about before, um, with the hypersexualization of Asian women, kind of this um, impossibility of being um, unsexed, I guess, is one way to, to say that. Um, and then she goes on to say that one does not go without the other, that is woman and sex. And woman, with its undefinable specificity, uh, cannot be unsexed. Um, so, yeah, I would recommend her her writing, and she's also done some really nice photo essays. Um, and yeah, I hope this has been uh, illuminating, healing, helpful, um, interesting, um, eye-opening, all of the above. And tell me what you think. And um, it's Friday, bon weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Ciao for now.